I love it when we turn our attention away from ourselves and think about our Sovereign Lord. And that's what we're going to do now for this next, uh, well, I would say maybe 35, 40 minutes, but there's 16 pages of notes here. And since it's such a miserable day and you don't want to go out anyway, um, that's a lot of notes. I usually don't come with 16 pages, but there was something I wanted to tell you, so uh, there it is. But let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to James chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your constant care in our lives. We know it's true. And Lord, today, as we just reflect upon that, we've been doing that through the words of the songs we've been singing about our trust in you, about the peace we have when our minds are stayed on you, about the song that speaks of your sovereignty over us. These are important words for us today, and I pray that they may penetrate these hearts of ours. Help us to put things in perspective today and uh, come back again with praise to your name. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in James chapter 5, we are working our way into the text, obviously. We're not getting through it before Christmas, because next week we start Christmas messages. So we're going to pick this up again in January when we get back after the holiday season. But our paragraph was from verse 7 here, verse 7, um, down to all, all the way to verse number 11. So we made it at least this far, and we're going to go back to 7, 8, 9 as our three verses today. But the context, let me remind you of our context here. As we're studying in James chapter 5, the first handful of verses does deal with injustice. Primarily, that's what the believer feels that he addresses later uh, in um, verse number 7. The believer has been undergoing some injustice. They have been working for an individual who's rather wealthy. Uh, That individual has withheld their pay. Uh, there's reasons why that person did that, and that's because they're selfish and they want, somehow felt that by getting richer, they were somehow gaining some sort of credibility before God, and that's not true uh, at all. So I'm not going to rehearse all of those verses again for us. It's just that in the context, the believers were hurting greatly, uh, and we could appreciate that and understand that, to have something we're dependent upon withheld, for selfish reasons, for ungodly reasons, and to feel that and say, now, where's the justice of that? I thought God was taking care of me. You know, and all the questions that might arise when you're going through such difficult times as this. And um, the uh, writer James tells them, first of all, be patient. Not an easy thing to hear. (laughs) Uh, Be patient. And he tells them again, be patient. In verse number 8. Uh, as well, strengthen your hearts. And then the fourth command that went with that was, do not complain. Those are important commands. Now, let's sit back for a second and realize what those commands are actually addressing. To be impatient means I didn't get it when I wanted it. To have a weak heart means that it didn't go my way. (laughs) So I quit. I give up. I'm not going to stick to it. To complain, well, you know what that means. 
I'm not happy. It's not satisfying me. So, who's getting the focus if we're not doing those things? We are. I find it interesting, and this is true, you can, you can follow it all the way through Scripture, but when this kind of issue is addressed in Scripture, notice how many times the epistle authors will say, uh, don't forget Jesus is coming. Or they'll turn your attention to where the Lord is, or who the Lord is, or why we should trust Him. Because many times, and I know it too well, and maybe you do too, when trouble comes, and especially injustice, we look to protect ourselves. And we go into that mode, right? Where I've got to defend my property, I've got to defend my way, I've got to do it. And we start on this self-focus. And all the while, Scripture is saying, no, look to Christ. Does he do it here? Look at the three verses before us. Verse 7, verse 8, and verse number 9. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Oh, he did it. He just moved our attention, didn't he? Until the coming of the Lord. Look at verse number 8. You too be patient, strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. He did it again. He turned our attention to the coming of the Lord. Look at verse number 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Who's that? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it three times. With each of the commands, he turns our attention back to the Lord. That is the anchor. That is the anchor. I love talking about the coming of the Lord. I think it needs to be said often. The Lord is coming. And it could be today. We believe that. We think Scripture supports that very strongly. We're going to talk about the coming of the Lord. Because it's mentioned three times in this passage. And what I like when I read this is somewhat of a progression of thought. In verse number 7, he says, Until the coming of the Lord... And then in verse number 8, he says, the coming of the Lord is near. And in verse number 9, he's got him right at the door. Now, I don't know about you, but some people enjoy watching uh, funny videos and things on the, the Internet. It's amazing you can find some good things, too. Uh, but every now and then, there's these little cute cat videos. And if you've ever sat and watched cat videos, you could be there all day long with these little cat videos. But the one that really struck me as, as funny, and I hope I could express it well, because this is what I remember seeing. There's a camera set down on the floor level, right, in a room. And all the way across the room, about 15 feet long, it's aimed at a doorway. And in that doorway is the head of a little kitten looking at the camera. And it's standing frozen. The cat won't move. Absolutely frozen in place. Staring at the camera. And then the camera moves for a moment and then it comes right back. And this time it focuses on the kitten. Frozen in place, ten feet away. Absolute perfect in the same posture it was before. But now it's five feet closer. 
And then they move the camera away, and they bring it back, and there it is, five feet away. The same kitten, same pose, same expression on its face, frozen, fixated on that little camera. And you say, wow, it's getting closer. Guess what happens the next time you bring it back? It's right on the lens. You see the whole full face of that kitten staring right into it. And it's, what's funny about it is, is it doesn't look like it's moved at all, except that it's gotten closer every time you put the camera on it. And it's kind of a cute little thing to watch, but how it's frozen every time is funny to me. Every stage, the kitten approached and got closer and closer and closer. Now, the reason I share that with you today is just look at the progression of what James has just said. We're waiting for those coming of the Lord. The next time he brings it up, he's near. The next time he brings it up, he's right at the door. I picture that as a progression, getting closer and closer. And in reality, there's some truth to this very thing. The coming of Jesus was to James, or to Peter, or to Paul, or any of the other New Testament writers, a reality that he was coming. When they said Jesus was coming, they always said it in the present tense. They didn't speak of it like some way future event. They said, he is coming. The, the fact is, they believed that he was already in the process. He was coming. And it may sound strange to you to say, well, what's taking him so long to get here? But it's the mentality of it. Think of it. They're not setting it aside like some hope, some dream, some word down the road. But they understood it as just as sure as his word. He is coming. We might as well say he's on his way. That's how sure they were of it. And so they spoke of it that way, which was really interesting to me. Because here's where we are. Every single tick of the clock takes us one second closer to when he arrives. He's coming. We are in a generation that we think he's going to come while we're still alive. Do you think that? Do you think you're going to see him? I do. I think we have every reason to believe that, just as much as any other believer had any reason to believe that. Paul believed that. Peter believed that. They thought any moment Jesus was going to arrive. Were they wrong? No. No, they were not wrong. They were told to think that way. They were told to think that way. Remember the angel when they talked to the disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven? This same Jesus who you've just seen go up to heaven will come just like that. They expected that within a day or two. A week or two. They were probably shocked it took him a month. They lived that way. There's reason for them to live that way. Because Jesus had promised. But James is hanging on to that promise here. The coming of the Lord. Let's, let's use some interesting words here that James uses in the text. When he says in verse number 7, the coming of the Lord, he uses the Greek word parousia. Parousia is an interesting word. It's the word of presence. Not Christmas presence, but physical presence. 
that you're you're actually arrived. You're there. It's it's a compound of words with para means alongside, and the word usia is a present participle. I should ask Esther to parse it out for us. Um, she took my class, but a present participle which means I am here. That's why the word is put together this way. I am here alongside. I am near. I am physically present. That's the word that comes from it. An actual arrival or physical presence. An actual coming. Now, when I talk about Jesus coming, as they do in Scripture, being a good dispensationalist, uh, I believe it's to be taken literally. Scripture should be taken literally. And when it says that Jesus is coming, I believe he's coming literally, physically, actually, visibly, he is coming. I believe that. That's what Scripture says. Why would we think otherwise? When he left, didn't he leave actually, physically, visibly? Yes. That's what they saw. And the angel said, he's coming in the like manner. He's coming just like that. I believe that's the way we should take Scripture. You already knew that. But this is what's confusing in our day. And I don't know if I could clear it all up in 30, 30 minutes or so, but the, the eschatology of our day and age is so confusing. People aren't sure whether or not Jesus is actually coming now or later. Is he coming before the tribulation or during the tribulation or after the tribulation? Is he coming before the millennial period or after the millennial period? Are we in the millennial period? Those are fun questions to ask. But I'll tell you this, I looked outside and it's not the millennial period. That's not it. But here, the, the confusion is all over the map when you study it theologically. And you say, Why, what do they mean that he's coming? Uh, what does it mean that he's going to be here literally or physically or visibly? Commentators are very vague, I have to confess. Even the ones on my shelf that I pull out to help me with James chapter 5. And I see that word coming. And I say, oh, this should, be a, this should be an easy one for them to answer. It's a very straightforward thing. But it's interesting how many of them ignore that very phrase in their commentary. They could bypass it altogether. Or if they answer it, they say, oh, well, the way this, that, 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 and they have so many words in there, you have no idea what they're talking about. Some people say, no, you shouldn't be so literal, Pastor. The, the going trend is to say that eschatology is divisive. So we shouldn't talk about it. It divides people in the church. Because this person believes that and that person believes that. And they think as if it's wrong to be dogmatic about the truth. I'm not afraid to say it the way I see it. I think it does a disservice to the church to leave us confused. To act as though we have no idea what's going to happen. And maybe we just should uh, avoid this topic. We should be very careful that we don't touch in somebody's feelings about this one. Uh, But if we leave the church confused, if we do not apply a sound hermeneutic to a passage, uh, we will be living confused. We will be unstable in our ways. I don't want a church like that, do you? 
I don't want to be like that, where we have no idea which way is up and which way is down. I prefer the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual approach to the Bible, because it's consistent. Everything that it holds to is true all the way through, and it's, it's consistent in its approach. So I believe that Christ is coming before the tribulation period, because God's word says so. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming before the millennial period because God's word says so. I'm what they call a pre-tribulational premillennialist. Right? If you like big words, that's where it starts to identify what I call the coming of the Lord. Let me explain this a little bit and show you what I mean. According to the New Testament epistles, the very next event facing the church is the rapture of the church. It's going to happen. It's a fact, folks. It's not because I said so or even wrote a book about it. It's a fact because God said so. In the scriptures, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go there and I'll show you a few things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Very significant passage. I think one of the strongest passages in all the New Testament on the coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Isn't that pretty clear? About those who are asleep. Who's that? Those who have died. They are believers. There was confusion. So that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Oh, do we? That's important, isn't it? Here's the thing. Watch this in in Scripture. When it talks about something we don't know, it anchors to something we do know. And almost every prophecy about what's going to happen is anchored to the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Amazing how that happens in the text over and over again. And he starts with that because that's where we start. We believe it. And so I changed my word a little bit because it fits the Greek better. Since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. That if is not an if. It's a since. Alright? Since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming. There is that word, parousia. The coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Did you see a maybe anywhere in that passage? No. Because God's speaking about a fact, isn't he? It will happen. It will happen. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. You say, that's not the word rapture. Well, if we were reading Latin, it is. Because that's the word, the Latin word is rapture, right there. It's a verb form. Being caught up in a quick hurry. You may not like it so much, but it's the idea of getting hit with a harpoon. Alright? It happens very quickly, and once it does, you're caught. Alright? And that's the idea. You will be caught up. Snatched is the Greek word. But that's the rapid, uh, the rapidness. Rapidness, I think that's the word. If not, I made it up. That's the nature of the whole act. It will be that sudden, that quick. 
you will be caught up together. We will be caught up together, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. We're to comfort one another with these words, right? Do you find that comforting? Absolutely. That's the fact. That's what Paul was telling them. It's a fact, folks. He's doing this. He's coming again. The church will be caught up. And that means if you're alive and he comes, you go. You go. If you have passed away, you're still going. Because the dead in Christ rise first. All right? So he's coming for the church. There's a lot, a lot more to that. But turn to Second Thessalonians. Next book. Chapter 2, verse number 1. In case you're wondering, are you sure that the coming of the Lord really is the rapture? Are you sure that's true? Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to, watch, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the parousia, and what is it also defined as? Our gathering together with Him. That's the same event. The coming of the Lord and our gathering together with Him. He just told you we are going to be gathered, right? That was the rapture. So He has united those in one simple phrase, and He's going to talk to the same group about the same issue in Second Thessalonians. So Paul's not confusing. He says, it's a fact. I just want to talk about the fact. And they all knew it was the fact after Paul wrote it. Alright? So, that's the first thing I do. Now, what's it going to be like? Well, Scripture defines that too for us. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know this passage. But 1 Corinthians 15 starts with verse 50 and goes to the end of the chapter. Now it describes what it is like. Since we know it's going to happen, what's it going to be like? And Paul starts to describe it here to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now, this I say, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does a perishable inherit the imperishable. This is a great statement. People say, I don't get it. Well, it's real simple. You know this body you're wearing right now? It's perishable. I don't know if you know that. But it's happening. It's a perishable body. It's a body that is slowly wearing out. It's a body that will eventually die. It's, it's what the body does. These bodies are not designed for heavenly circles. Alright? These are not the things that, that fit up there. Because that's not a place where we go up to die. That's where we'll be very much alive. So, what's Paul going to say? It's real simple, guys. These bodies have to be changed. We can't take these old worn out things up there. God's going to change them. It fits his environment. Heavenly circles, spiritual circles. So this is what he's described here. Behold, I tell you a mystery, verse 51. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It has to happen. You can't take this old worn out thing with you. God will change it. How? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet is sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He just said exactly what he said in Thessalonians, but he tells you what's happening now. We're being changed at that moment when Jesus comes. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable has put on the imperishable, and this mortal has put on 
immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, or grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He's telling you, you don't have to worry about this. God has this all taken care of, your change that you need to go through. So get busy. Just get busy. Do your thing. He's going to come, and he's going to come at the right time. And he will change you. What Paul told Titus in second in the second chapter, verse 13, Titus 2.13, he says, We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for it. Now, I want you to think like I do. All right? I have every reason to believe that Jesus would do what he has promised. Every reason to believe that. It's real simple. In my book, it's real simple. John 14, he said this, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And here's a great verse, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And that where I am, you may be also. That's his promise. Can we be sure? Well, consider this. Jesus has already had a parousia. It was his first coming. We celebrate it in the next month. We call it Christmas. The birth of Christ. His first coming to this earth to take on flesh and dwell among us, right? Was that a true event? Did it actually happen? Was it physical? Was it actual? Was it visible? How many times was that promised? Well, we could go through the Old Testament and we could find verse after verse after verse after verse. Hundreds of hundreds of verses to say that Jesus is coming. That promise was there. Let me give you a handful of them. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There is a promise all the way back to the day when Adam and Eve sinned, that God says, I'm going to send the Messiah to bruise Satan's head. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He came to fulfill that. There was a promise that he would come from the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse number 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, as a reference to Christ, and until the gathering of his people. The fulfillment in Luke chapter 3. 23, all the way through 33. It's a long passage, but it starts to identify the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And when you go through it, it talks about Jesus being... 
about, well, he was about the age of 30 years of age. Uh, it says he was supposedly the son of Joseph. And then it starts the son of this and the son of that and the son of this and the son of that. And it goes all the way down till it says the son of Judah. Just like the promise. It says that the Messiah will be God himself. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Is that true? Matthew says it this way. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, because it means God with us. Perfect fulfillment. In Isaiah, it promised that Jesus would take the throne of his father David. In Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and peace, there be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom in order to establish it with judgment and justice forevermore. Matthew 1-1, it defines the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It says in Micah 5, 2, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah says, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. Speaking of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Surprise! No, it was prophesied. Jesus would be born of a virgin. That was promised too. Isaiah 7:14. The Lord himself gave you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call, you shall call his name Emmanuel. That was literally fulfilled too. Matthew 1:18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child by the Holy Spirit. Virgin born. Moses prophesied of his coming. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up for thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brothers like unto me, and you will hearken unto him. Acts chapter 7, verse 37. This is what Moses said to the children of Israel. A prophet shall, shall the Lord your God raise up for you among your brethren like unto me, you shall hear him. And when Stephen said that, he was pointing right at Jesus Christ. He's the prophet that Moses promised. John chapter 6, verse 14 adds to this, that those men, when they seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, truly, a prophet has come into the world. They identified him as one too. The prophecy that the, that the Messiah would arrive and be cut off before the destruction of Jerusalem. Did you know that? Scripture says he would come and he would be crucified before the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Daniel told us many, many, many hundreds of years before, after three scores and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. He gives us a timeline in Matthew, or Daniel chapter 9 of Jesus coming. He will be cut off before the destruction of the city. That was fulfilled. Jesus was crucified sometime in the 30s. The Romans destroyed the city in the 70s. The Messiah would come out of Egypt. You say, really? Well, Hosea said so. 
Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And Matthew picked up on that. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He says, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. It was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Fulfilled perfectly. The Messiah would be rejected. That was promised in Isaiah 53. He would be despised and rejected men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it, we hid our faces from him. He was despised, we esteemed him not. Fulfilled perfectly in John chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And also Luke chapter 23, verse 18. They cried out all at once and said, Away with this man. Release to us Barabbas. <laughs> the promise was that Jesus would ride on a donkey. Zechariah told us that in chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, riding upon a donkey, the colt of a donkey. John 12, what happened? Verse 13 and 14, they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, said, Hosanna, blessed is he, the king of Israel, that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it was written. He was betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41, verse 9 told us that. Yes, my own familiar friend, whom I trusted. I ate bread with him. He lifted up his heel against me. In Mark 14, verse 10, it identifies that friend. His name is Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve. He went unto the chief priest to betray him. He would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Remember that promise? That came from Zechariah 11, verse 12. It said, Unto him, if you think it good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed out my price, 30 pieces of silver. And what did Judas get? 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 15 says so. He would, the betrayer would take that price of 30 pieces of silver and buy a potter's field with it. What an interesting promise. Zechariah eleven thirteen said so. Cast it, it unto the potter, a goodly price that's prized of them. So I took 30 pieces of silver and cast them in the potter, to the potter in the house of the Lord. Matthew 27, it says this, very interesting, verse 5 through 7. He cast down the pieces of the silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful us to put that in the treasury because it's a price of blood. So they took counsel and bought with it a potter's field. Amazing, isn't it? To bury strangers in. They turned it into that. It promised in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 5, that he would be beaten. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Was he beaten? Yes. Matthew 27, 26. He re they released Barabbas. They scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. It said that he would die with the wicked. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that. He would, he would die with the wicked, numbered among the transgressors. And when we see that in Matthew 27, verse 38, 
he is crucified between two thieves. It said that his hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 26, 18. They pierced my hands and my feet. John 20, 27. Jesus had the piercings in his hands and feet. Remember he told Thomas? Come and stick your finger into my hands and reach into my side. And stop disbelieving. The promise was that they'd give him vinegar to drink. Did you know that? Psalm 69, verse 21, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And in John 19, verse 29, guess what they offered him? While he was on the cross, they, they uh, took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and handed it to him to drink. He would be pierced in his side with a spear. Zechariah 12, verse 10, talks about him being pierced through. And in John chapter 19, that's exactly what they did in verse number 54, or 34. They pierced him with a spear. They would gamble for his clothing. Psalm 22, verse 18 says that they would cast lots for my clothing. And that's exactly what the Roman soldiers did in Mark chapter 15, in verse number 24. When they crucified him, they parted his garments, they cast lots for them. None of his bones would be broken. That was prophesied in Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And then when they came to Jesus in Matthew, or John 19, 33, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. He would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53, verse 9 promised that. He would have his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. And in Matthew 27, it was Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, who used that tomb to bury Jesus. How many more do you want? Do you know what I'm showing you this morning? The Old Testament prophecies that talked about his first coming. How many of those do you think was actually fulfilled? Every single one. Every single one. We could be here the rest of the day, literally, looking them all up and say, wow, that too? Wow, that too? Down to details. Drinking vinegar from a sponge. Down to the detail. Now, I say it this way. If he is that confident that the first coming was fulfilled, what should we think of the second coming? Do you think that he's going to fulfill it perfectly? He's going to fulfill every word that he's promised? In every way that he promised? Exactly like he said? I have no doubt about it. None whatsoever. Because that's what he said. And I could base my whole argument today on his second coming. Whether I talk about the rapture of the church or all the events that will follow. The tribulation period, the second coming of Christ to the literal earth itself where he defeats the army of the Antichrist, where he rescues the Jews, where he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, where he reigns for a thousand years. I could take you verse after verse after verse after verse and show you that's in Scripture. And that is to be taken literally. Just like he promised. Just like he promised. The end of it all comes down to the simple thing. We are to be encouraged by it. 
That's where our confidence lies. That he keeps his word. That's why I don't want to be vague about it. That's why I say, well, why can't we take it literally? James is doing that. These people are under injustice. The Lord's coming. That's not some, oh, I hope you feel better for a few seconds kind of a statement. That's where a believer should be standing all the time. In the firm conviction, Jesus Christ is coming. That's why we don't need to be impatient with what goes on in this world. Jesus Christ is coming. That's why we need a strong heart in this world. Jesus Christ is coming. That's why we don't need to stop and wonder, where's the justice and who's going to fix this problem and why do we have to go through it all? The judge is standing at the door. You see our focus? It's on Him, not on us. And He's coming. That's what gives them courage to stand firm in an evil day. I I suggest to you we're living in an evil day too. Guess what our focus should be set on? He is coming, folks. He is coming. That's a promise we have in Scripture. That's the drive for a difficult day. One person I heard once when I was doing research on the tribulation period, and they were complaining about us, us who believe that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation period. And they said this. It was kind of a funny statement, but they said, oh, you only believe that because you don't want to go through it. And I said, yeah, that's true, too. I don't want to go through it. What's wrong with thinking that way? But that's not the only reason why I believe that. I'm glad that's true. But I'm looking forward to my Savior. I'm looking forward to seeing Him. The grace of God has appeared, Titus heard one day, and Paul wrote to him. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, and instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And James would even sign his name to that too from what we're reading in his book. We're to live godly. That means we're going to live like Christ. All right? That's what James is calling us to, because we know he's coming. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of information in all this, but there's one simple theme for us, that is to keep looking for Jesus to come. We know he's here, coming soon. We know it's true. And as your word has promised it so clearly, we have reviewed some of that today, and maybe our hearts are convinced. And I hope that's true. And I hope that we can live in light of that keeping our eyes on Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. He's coming. May that encourage our hearts. May that help us to live godly in a present day like this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.